Here's a simple question with a not-so-simple answer. How did you learn how to read? How did any of us learn how to read? Is it ABCs and 123s and all that? We took enough strolls down Sesame Street. Perhaps we just took a look in a bunch of books on a rainbow. Butterfly in the sky. In truth, reading is actually a science, and there are myriad factors that contribute to our learning how to read, write, and more. There is a lot of research out there concerning literacy, and there are a lot of different theories on what might be the best strategies to gain literacy skills. And there's a shared consensus. Childhood literacy is absolutely paramount to building a healthy, successful future. Unfortunately, we might be falling behind in teaching language and comprehension to children and that can be detrimental for a lifetime. But there are those out there who are working and striving to right that ship, working to ensure children gain the skills they need to succeed from a very early age. I'm Jacob Carroza, and you're listening to Now at Ohio State. We talk with researchers, innovators, and bold thinkers who look at our world see what the real challenges are, and create the solutions that people need now. Shane Piasta is one such person. She's a professor of reading and literacy in early and middle childhood in the Department of Teaching and Learning here at Ohio State. She's also a faculty associate with the college's Crane Center for Early Childhood Research and Policy. Her research focuses on early literacy development and how it's best supported during preschool and elementary years. Here she talks with our Ross Bischoff about the science of reading, what her research has found, and what we can do better, both inside the classroom and out, to help children gain literacy skills. Shane, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm so excited to join you. Tell us a little bit about your research, first of all. So I'm a professor here in the Department of Teaching and Learning, and I'm actually a developmental psychologist by training. So I study how children develop early literacy skills and reading skills. I study how children develop and learn the alphabet. I also study classroom practices and how those practices can afford better learning opportunities for kids and better outcomes. And I'm also very interested in what teachers know about teaching early literacy and how we can support teachers in terms of professional development. One thing I've read is you really explore the science of literacy. Explain what that is. Sure. So I think the science of literacy makes more sense as a term. I think what people are currently referring to is science of reading, but it really does refer to all aspects of literacy. So not just reading, but also spelling and writing and composing. The science of reading is really a knowledge base. So it's this interdisciplinary collective knowledge base as to what we know about how literacy skills develop what component skills are important for successful reading and writing, as well as what we know about effective practices for supporting those who are learning to read and write. How crucial is early literacy for lifelong skills? What are the long-term benefits? In terms of long-term benefits, we know that children's early literacy skills pave the path for them to be able to comprehend text and critically think about text. So 
generally we talk about thinking about the early years as learning to read. And then there's a shift where there's more emphasis on using your ability to read, to learn new vocabulary, new ideas, new concepts, particularly in content area domains. In addition to that, we can also link these early literacy skills and then continued literacy success during the school years to adult outcomes. So more likely to graduate from college, more likely to be in a higher income bracket, more likely to be physically healthy, more likely to have savings. All of these types of more likely to have healthy socio-emotional development, all of these really important life outcomes that we can trace back in some part to children's early language and literacy skills. Some of the numbers that you see indicate in the United States that children and even like middle schoolers have fallen behind when it comes to reading. Why is that happening and should we be concerned? It's a little hard to tease out the numbers in terms of whether we're falling more behind with children's early literacy skills. Certainly, we do have evidence that COVID severely impacted children's learning opportunities. And when you impact learning opportunities, you're also going to impact children's learning. Regardless of whether we're falling behind, what I can say is that we're certainly not where we'd like to be particularly with supporting the literacy learning of children who might be coming from high poverty backgrounds or from marginalized communities. So it's really important that we are continually seeking to improve and leverage research to improve the reading and writing instruction that is happening in schools. I think that's a great point. How can we address some of those disparities or inequities in the pre-K classroom? One thing that's important is for us to make sure that we're meeting the needs of all children in the classroom. We can't assume that children arrive with the same level of skills or the same background experiences as other children. So in one of my studies, I just simply took a look at children who were entering kindergarten and how much they knew about letter names and letter sounds. And you could see that they were all the way from some kids who had had no experience with that all the way to kids who had already fully learned all the names and all the sounds of the letters and were ready to move on to something more akin to actual conventional reading. So making sure that we know the kids who are in the classroom taking advantage of assessments to be able to pinpoint what their current strengths are and what their areas for improvement might be, and then really making sure to what's called differentiate our instruction or provide instruction that is really meeting the needs of different children in the classroom, whether that's by providing different emphases for different kids, whether that's by pre-teaching for some children, particularly English language learners, might benefit from pre-teaching some of the vocabulary in a storybook that's about to be read. And even doing some small group work with specific children who have specific needs that need a little bit more attention from the teacher. So where are we falling short? There seems to be this misunderstanding that the science of literacy or science of reading is specific to phonics instruction only. And 
like I said, it's a knowledge base. So we want to use instructional practices that align with that knowledge base. But we know from the science that there is so much more to the reading process and to components of successful reading that phonics is necessary but insufficient on its own. So one place we were, I think we could be doing better would be to ensure that we are, yes, providing that foundational phonics instruction, but we can't forget to also build language skills and comprehension skills and even conceptual knowledge, just knowledge about the world. Because if we want children to successfully read, that really means that they're able to extract the meaning from a book or from a text. So they need to be able to not only figure out the words on the page are, but also link that to the vocabulary that they have and be able to understand what those words mean and what they mean when they're put together. And generally that also requires linking to any prior knowledge that you have about a topic. So we're falling short on the language and comprehension end. And what does that mean long-term for children who maybe aren't absorbing that or, or maybe trying to, on a deeper level, figure out a story or whatever it may be? So first, I want to say that the reason that there's room for improvement there is because the science also is trying to catch up. And so we have a lot of research evidence about effective instructional practices related to phonics or what I would call the code focus side of things. So these are the foundational skills that let you figure out what is that word on the page. We don't have as much in terms of instructional practices that foster reading comprehension, foster language. And that's both because the science is still working on that area, but also because I think the phonics sometimes overshadows this piece of things. And so we want to make sure that we are building children's opportunities to talk in the classroom. Even just the amount of talk that children are doing can often be associated with better outcomes. So making sure that we're not just learning the phonics piece and learning how to read the words on the page, but how to put those together and how to make meaning of them. Can you talk about the science of reading legislations now? I mean, what maybe define that a little bit and, and what it means to us. This legislation, the intent is for us to do a better job of translating research to practice and practice to research, such that the practices that are happening in schools are aligned with what we know about teaching literacy and developing literacy from scientific research. The intent, like I said, is, is great in terms of this legislation, but each different policy has a slightly different take on how to do that. And there are challenges sometimes in making a sweeping change like this and not allowing kind of time and buy-in and what we know from implementation science in order to have those changes implemented in a sustainable way, in a way where we have teachers and parents and everyone on board. So if you were going to advise policymakers, what would be your advice? 
First and foremost, I would remind everyone that it is the teacher in the classroom who is teaching children to read and write. It's not a particular curriculum. It's not a particular intervention. Those can be really important supports to teachers, but we need to remember that the teacher is at the center of this. Other recommendations that I would make would be to provide very clear definitions as to what is meant by the term science of reading or other terms that are being used in legislation so that it can be clear and we can all be on the same page. I think we have an issue where science of reading is being conflated with phonics first or phonics only programs. And again, I don't want to downplay how important phonics is, but we need to be also focusing on other aspects of reading and writing at the same time. And I would also encourage legislators to think about or learn about what we know from implementation science in order to really craft this legislation in ways that it will be taken up in ways that are sustainable and that are able to be sustained and funded over time. Shane, this has been incredibly insightful. Thank you so much for all your work and for being with us today. I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you for having me. As one might imagine, most childhood learning takes place in, you guessed it, the classroom. Teachers play a huge role in terms of helping children achieve their literacy goals. That includes Meredith Schilling. Meredith has been a team lead pre-K teacher at The Ohio State University's A. Sophie Rogers School for Early Learning for 17 years. The school is a national model for best practices. She takes some time to speak with Ross about what she sees in her classrooms, how trauma from the pandemic is negatively affecting literacy and social development, and what we all can do to help children learn and grow. Hi, Meredith. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Ross. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. I'm happy to. I think on the list of difficult jobs, being a pre-K teacher has to be at the top. Kind of give us an idea of what it's like to be a pre-K teacher on a daily basis. Being a pre-K teacher can be very rewarding, and it can be very stressful. Rewarding in the fact that you know you're making a positive impact on children and families on a daily basis, and sometimes on a long-term basis. Stressful in the fact that working with any human subjects, we know that there's inconsistencies and situations that might be unexpected at any time. So it's really important to be flexible, to maintain professionalism, and always the bottom line is the utmost respect for children and families. Tell us about the A. Sophie Rogers School. Sure. The A. Sophie Rogers School is a demonstration site, and it intersects with research, practice, and policy. And that's what I think is one of the most unique aspects of our program and our organization. And as far as our research has shown, there's nothing like it in the nation. And so in terms of the intersection, we're unique because of the partners of the Crane Center for Early Childhood Research and Policy. So we're able to learn from these other perspectives. We have research, practice, and policy all under one roof, which is quite unique. This means that our researchers work with classroom teachers like myself, we're grounded in evidence, and our staff care about each of these perspectives when they translate research for policymakers. The A. Sophia Rogers School is comprised of four pre-K classrooms, and in those classrooms are children who are three to five years old, and three infant and toddler classrooms, which is comprised of children who are birth to three years old. In mixed age grouping, the idea is that children learn best from their peers, as do many of all of us adults. 
And so when you have children of different ability levels and different ages, they can work together to learn from each other. Coming out of the pandemic, there were some statistics that were pretty startling as far as Ohio kindergarten teachers' readiness assessments, right? Mm -hmm. And they found that 65% or almost two-thirds of kindergartners are falling behind in just being ready for school. What are you seeing from a pre-K vantage point that points to this? Or what are you seeing coming out of the pandemic that children might be struggling with? Children are struggling with trauma from the pandemic. And trauma, as we traditionally discuss it in education and in other fields, are really severe things such as violence in the home, drug abuse, children being displaced from their home, whereas the pandemic really caused everybody trauma. It's just a different level of trauma, and it depends on your resources and how you're able to manage and cope with those experiences of trauma. So some children were at home and Maybe their parent had to go out and work just to make money, and maybe they weren't supervised well during that time. Maybe their parent had to work from home, and they were also not really supervised or engaged in many things besides screen time. And then some other children had the resources in their family where they might have had a nanny or group care in a bubble, so to speak. And so you can really see, based on the year or two years, depending on the family's choice about how they were going to isolate or not, how that impacts a child and specifically their social-emotional growth. If they're not interacting with any of their peers, even if they're their siblings, it still doesn't give the same robust experience that group care and group education gives. What are some typical things you see at your school? So what you see is a trauma response. So there is a trauma response called fight, where that's a perceived threat, and therefore a child can be aggressive physically, verbally. Flight, which means a child just wants to elope or escape from a situation. An example of this would be a group instruction, and they, they might not understand or they might not feel comfortable, and so they'll engage in a behavior that will naturally have them removed from the group, even if it's still within the classroom setting. And then another trauma response is freeze, and that's what it sounds like. A child who just really cannot move on to the next step, or they have to really think through it before they move on to the next step. And then there's fawn, and fawn is about appeasing other people, pleasing other people as to avoid a perceived threat. And all of those responses, if they are not addressed, then the child can never get to the learning portion of, say, counting, ad addition, letter sound connection, and reading, because their basic needs are not met. Their nervous system is dysregulated. How do you then get them ready for kindergarten if you're, if you're dealing with all this other stuff? Exactly. And, and that's why I think part of the reason only that there is this major gap in terms of kindergarten readiness, and it comes from both the home environment and the school environment. So what that takes, at least in the school environment that I'm in, is a lot of individualization and a lot of understanding that maybe what that child needs is just to be rocked for a little bit to regulate their system before they can even move on to an activity about patterning. What that looks like in the classroom is asking a child who might be really proficient with puzzles to help a child who's really frustrated about it, but they don't want to interact with an adult. They would rather interact with their peers. And so it is challenging. It's absolutely challenging. And the best that we can do is what we can control in the classroom. 
Also very importantly is that we need to partner with parents to help them understand what they can do at home. What are some things that a parent could do in the home Mm -hmm. that could help them get ready for kindergarten? However you're getting transported to school, back home, etc., You can talk about the environment. There's a stop sign there. Let's talk about that. You can talk about shapes, colors, letters, letter sounds. Those are all just things that are in our environment. Um, Other things include symbolic languages like the target sign. Children often know what that is. That is still a language. It's a symbol that represents something else. Other things are basic activities such as making a grocery list. So many of us adults now use a device, be it a tablet or a phone or something you can talk into to make a grocery list. But if your child really likes Cheerios and you're out of Cheerios or they really like bananas and you're out of those, say, you know what, we better write that down so that we'll remember. And so what that tells the child is that their thoughts are connected to their words, which are connected to writing. And so that all works in your brain to develop those synapses that help you make those connections and give some foundational skills for reading and other types of literacy. This is the most important time in a person's life, zero to five. If we get it right, it supports them for the rest of their lives. If we don't, it can really set them down a rough path. If we don't get this stuff figured out, what are the long-term effects for our country, I guess? Well, certainly people won't be as prepared for the workforce. It's, in my opinion, innately important to support children during this time. But if you want to look at it from more of a business aspect, there's children that are not prepared for the workforce that because they didn't get a good foundation in early childhood— are then going through school systems where they're not prepared and that they are getting passed through grades while still being unprepared. So some parents may not have the financial ability to get a great pre-K experience. Is there something we as a society can do to help underprivileged families get better pre-K educations to, to level the field? The most important thing is subsidizing education. And that goes for children who might be underprivileged or qualify below the poverty line, as well as children who have two-parent incomes that are high enough to be able to pay for tuition. But it is really confusing for parents and for teachers, as a matter of fact, how childcare can cost so much and also know that teachers are so undercompensated. And it's in my opinion that where that bridge is met or created is because government funding is not there. The reason that K through 12 is able to have teachers with higher pay and they're able to go for free is because the government subsidizes that. Our tax money subsidizes that. That doesn't happen pre-K and below. Statistics show tremendous turnover for pre-K teachers. What can be done to support teachers doing this incredibly difficult but important work? Yes, I've witnessed a high amount of teacher turnover, especially within the past two years. Whether that's related to the pandemic or not, teachers aren't feeling valued. There's a decent percentage of people who are educators in early childhood who are still on government assistance because of the low wages. Something that is a superpower of preschool teachers and also to our detriment is that we handle stressful situations and we internalize quite a bit and we are not so great at self-care. That's something that was talked a lot about in the pandemic. But when you are working an eight-plus-hour day and you're exhausted, 
it's really difficult to go then home and know that it's difficult to pay the bills or it's difficult to deal with your own children or your own partners. And so it's, in my opinion, teacher compensation cannot be the only answer, but better working conditions and better respect across the board for teachers and what they do. So this is a tough job, but I imagine you love it. I mean, we've talked before, you have a passion for this. What is your favorite part of the day? When you walk in, majority of children run up to you and are like, hi, Miss Meredith. There's not a lot of other workplaces where you walk in and your coworkers, I can consider them my coworkers to a degree, run up and, and just give you all this love and just cannot wait to see you. Other parts that I really enjoy are those little moments where you notice that a child is grasping a concept. Also, when they're sharing with you some things that you can use in order to help them grow, they're letting you into their lives because they don't have to and some children don't like to. And the more that we share a little bit of our lives as teachers and they share with us as students, the more that bond grows and education happens within relationships. And if that relationship isn't strong, then the child's not going to be as likely to trust you and you might not have as much access to what's in their life that would help you as a teacher to help them. Meredith, thank you so much for all your work and thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Ross. I appreciate this opportunity. As Ross stated, from birth to age five is the most important part of development. The beginning stages of literacy development are vital, essential. Reading, writing, speaking and understanding, these pillars of communication are what the rest of their lives are built upon. They're like the sturdy legs of a chair, and if one is shorter than the other, things can get a little wobbly. So we all need to work together to make sure these pillars are equally strong in children. Because a sturdy, comfortable chair is the perfect place to settle in and open a good book. Now at Ohio State is produced by the Ohio State University's Office of Marketing and Communications. For more information, visit us at go.osu.edu slash now. I'm your host, Jacob Carroza. Thanks for listening.